you have your copy of God's Word this morning, I'd love for you to join me in opening up to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, If you don't know that song we just sang, you should look it up. It's good. Um, While you turn to 1 Timothy 1. Be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labors of my hands could ever fulfill your law's demands. There's no amount of zeal we can have, no amount of tears we can cry, no amount of atonement we can provide on our own. Only God can save. We can bring nothing to it. Simply to the cross we cling. We come naked and helpless to God for grace. He sees our hearts, our minds, our motives, our intentions. He knows everything about us, even the things that no one else knows. And we must fly to the fountain of grace. Man. Tomorrow morning you should look that up on your phone and listen to it. And then get pumped up about Jesus and living for Him. Okay, First Timothy 1. Uh, we've been walking through First Timothy the last few weeks. And what we've seen is this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a young pastor who he had discipled named Timothy. Paul had sent Timothy to this church in Ephesus, a church that Paul had played a role in founding. Paul had taught this church for years, two to three years he had stayed there on the ground ministering these people, teaching them the Word. Paul had established the leaders, he had equipped the leaders, he had warned the leaders, and right after Paul reminded reminds Timothy that he has authority as an apostle. And right after he reminds Timothy that he had discipled him and that he is his father in the faith, Paul immediately gets serious in verse 3. So look with me at 1 Timothy 1 verse 3 together this morning. It says, "...as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus." so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Paul immediately gets to the crux of the matter and he says to Timothy, stay in Ephesus. Why? To protect the doctrinal purity of the church that is under attack. There are some in this church that are elevating their opinions 
and are elevating unbiblical traditions over the inspired, sufficient Word of God. And this bad theology that is being taught is leading to people not being faithful to God and to the gospel, not only in what they say, not only in what they believe, but also in how they live. Paul had a lot invested in this church. The church in Ephesus, he had played a role in helping found it. He had discipled people there. He had relationships built. He had wrote a letter to them, the letter that we call Ephesians. And what had happened in Ephesus is that this strong church had become a command center for believers and for missionaries in taking the gospel to all of Asia Minor. This was a sending church. This is a church that missionaries would come back home to to be encouraged. They were commissioning people and sending them out, and yet there was a problem. Paul knew exactly how quick a church can go astray. He knew this before it went astray. Back in Acts 20 that we looked at a few weeks ago, Paul was going to Jerusalem. He thought that he was going to be put to death for his faith there. But en route, he stopped in Ephesus. He talked to the pastors and this is what he said. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to your flock. Why? For after my departure, fierce wolves will come in, and they will not spare the flock. In fact, from among your own selves, from among your church, from among your spiritual leaders, will arise men who speak twisted things to draw disciples away after them. Therefore, Paul says, Be alert. The Apostle Paul knew that those who are not grounded in the gospel and those who lack spirit-led discernment will fall for, promote, and believe false teaching. And now, merely five years later, Paul's warning from Acts 20 has become a reality in the church in Ephesus. So Paul has sent Timothy to go to this church and to protect this church. And he instructs him, Timothy, anything that's going to pull people away from the gospel must be done away with. He goes to him and he says, Timothy, your task given to you from our Lord Jesus is to guard the gospel. And our passage explains four different ways that the gospel must be guarded that I want to point out to you for you to consider this morning. The first is this, for a church to guard the gospel, Scripture must be the standard of truth. Scripture must be the standard of truth. Listen, when we think about false teachers today, we usually think about big name people. We think about people that write books, that are on TV, that are on podcasts, that have big followings, and there are certain people that immediately come to mind. And there are many false teachers who have big ministries that are dangerous and we should avoid, but, but don't neglect... This reality that 
Not everyone who is a false teacher has a public platform. There are false teachers who can infiltrate local churches who no one on the world stage has ever heard of before. They might not ever write a book or have a podcast or live stream a sermon on TV, but it might be in their Sunday school class or that small group Bible study or that book study that they're leading that they are propagating false doctrine that goes against the Scripture. Unknown men and women in local churches who lack discernment, who elevate their opinions and worldly wisdom over the truth and have veered from doctrinal faithfulness are just as common. In fact, they're more common and they're just as dangerous. In Ephesus, these teachers, the text tells us, have devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which likely means that they are teaching and propagating Jewish myths and traditions that go above and beyond the text of Scripture. And they're doing this in the name of going deeper. Now these false teachers that are doing this in Ephesus, I think, are unlike the Judaizers in the church in Galatia who were teaching that Salvation could be attained by good works. I don't think that's at the root of what's going on in Ephesus. Instead, these teachers are speculators. They are teachers who want to add to the Bible in the name of going deeper. They are claiming themselves to be authoritative interpreters of deeper truths in the Old Testament. And they are going beyond the text and they're pulling meanings and significance out of the text that were not inspired by God, that were not the prophet's intention, and therefore are not true, and they're promoting them as truth. They are allowing their agenda and their doctrine that conflicts with God's Word to guide their teaching ministry and their theology. And then they're promoting these teachings as a special knowledge God has given to them as the true and correct interpretation of the Bible. Does that kind of stuff still happen today? The answer is yes. Today, many will claim that they have new, special revelations from God. They have religious or spiritual experience that actually go directly against what the Scriptures teach us. And yet, those new revelations, those experiences are promoted as being equal with the truth of God's Word. Many today will get off in the weeds of speculation about things that the Bible do not speak into and yet are uninterested in obeying and living out what God's Word actually says. Many will ungraciously argue tooth and nail over their interpretation on some fuzzy, complicated subject that the Bible doesn't give a black and white answer for, and yet as they will argue tooth and nail and not show grace to those who disagree, they are not sacrificing for their family and for their church and are showing no evidence of the gospel humbling them and renewing and transforming them. Many will spend their days in this life trying to read the times and predict 
the end when there are gospel needs all around them that are being ignored and neglected. Like Pharisees who miss the heart of the law for the letter of the law, many today will major on minors and will add to God's law while neglecting the daily practices of loving God and neighbor. And many will do so in the name of being deep and intelligent and an intellectual. But friends, if our love of God and our personal holiness and our transformed life cannot keep up with our theological curiosity and speculations, then we need to rein them in. If our opinions about the truth are not built and founded on God's Word, they must be rejected. We must keep the main thing the main thing. And we must make sure that the theology we proclaim is also a theology that is transforming and changing and renewing us after Christ-likeness. One of the first ways that we must guard the gospel in the church is to make Scripture the standard of truth. But secondly, our text shows us that for a church to guard the gospel, sound doctrine must be prioritized. Sound doctrine must be prioritized. If you read through 1 Timothy, all six chapters, in one sitting, and you look closely, you'll see that Paul shows a concern for sound doctrine and teaching eight times in a mere six chapters. It's not always the word doctrine. Sometimes it's teaching. But the emphasis is showing that Paul cares about what the church believes. Timothy is told his task, his charge, is charge people not to teach any different doctrine, which implies that there is a right and true and biblical and God-inspired and Holy Spirit-led doctrine. Now, what is doctrine? Doctrine is the truth that God has given to us about who He is, about His purposes and His character. The truth that God has given to us so that we rightly understand who we are, so that we can understand our sins, salvation through Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, how we ought to live. In short, another word for it is our theology. Doctrine is a summation of what Scripture says about those important realities. You might be hearing this word doctrine and theology and saying, well, I'm not really interested in theology and I don't really have doctrine. Oh, no, you do. We all do. We all believe something about God and ourselves and salvation and this life and what matters. The problem is, is that far too many don't have the right doctrine. Far too many say, I'm not a theologian, but every one of us are a theologian. You're just a good one or a bad one. Doctrine is a summation of what Scripture says about the important realities that God has revealed to us in His Word. And what that means is, is sound doctrine is absolutely necessary and it is vitally important. And on the the flip side, bad doctrine, false doctrine, 
false beliefs about God, mankind, salvation, how we ought to live, what we're called to are egregiously evil and dangerous because it puts us at odds with the very God who made us for His own glory. And yet this is what happens when you start talking about doctrine and, and theology and, um, and stuff like that. Um, some people immediately get bored when they hear those words. <sighs> Big books, words, thinking, effort. Don't like those things, right? We hear doctrine, we hear theology. We say, we don't need more doctrine, Nick. We get enough of that. What we need is more application. What we need is more practical advice. We need more tips for living. We need more powerful music. What we need in the church is more exciting events. We need a more vibrant community. We need more innovative church growth strategies. All those things aren't bad. But many will get excited about all of those things and then will tune out and go to sleep and say, we don't need all that doctrine business. Doctrine is what divides. Doctrine is what causes problems. It's amazing what happens when people have to start using their brains and loving God with their minds that sometimes people disagree. That's true, right? And yet, we must, believe, we must know what we believe. Because if we don't know what we believe, then we will be no different than everyone else in the world who's believing lies. It's very important. Doctrine matters significantly. And doctrine is at the heart of practical living and holiness. And this is why. Because the more we know about God, the more we know about His character and who He is in and of Himself, the closer we will draw near to Him and the more Christ-like we will become. We need to know about God and ourselves and salvation and the church and the family and the future, not less but more. Friends, if a church, if an individual in a church does not have sound doctrine, then they will not be able to recognize false teaching who have swerved from orthodoxy and are desiring to be teachers and yet they are not qualified. That's why there's so many people today that are garbage Bible preachers and are writing books and have podcasts that are on TV and the masses are eating it up because they don't know any better. Because they zoned out in the Sermon on Sound Doctrine. If we don't have sound doctrine, we will be a gullible, easily manipulated people. If we don't have sound doctrine, we will fall for and go along with anything because we don't have any convictions about anything. Without sound doctrine, our faith will be built on personal experiences that are subjective and therefore untestable, on local traditions because we've never been exposed to anything else and any other backgrounds or traditions, and our faith will be built on half-hearted and fleshly desires instead of being built on the solid rock of God's inspired Word. But if we have sound doctrine, if we know what God has said and we believe the truth about God, our hearts and our minds will be changed and transformed and renewed. Oftentimes, this is what happens when you talk about doctrine and theology. Some people say, ah, not doing that, right? Reading, thinking, effort. That's actually going to require some time. Not interested in that. I'm just going to come to church, sing the songs, praise Jesus, right? Not know the truth about God. There's that response. 
which, side note, wrong response. Over here, there's a response of, yes, I need to know about this. I'm going to take this seriously. And then people will start studying doctrine and studying theology. And then when they start knowing something more about God, they start looking out at everybody else kind of as if they're peons who should study more like me. Right? They start kind of adopting an attitude of, you know, I, I have forgotten more about the Bible than you will ever know. And, and therefore, right, uh, I, I, the, the Word and, and the doctrine produces in them a sense of superiority, a sense of pride. And then people look at people who have that sense of pride, and what they don't like is that that person's a proud jerk, right? But instead of saying, you're just a proud jerk in every area of your life, right? They say, theology's bad, because look at what it's done to this guy, right? No, that, <laughs> that, that's the problem. When we get good theology and good doctrine and we study, the more we recognize who God is, and if it's really taking root in our hearts and our lives, it will not produce pride and arrogance. It will not produce a sense of superiority. Instead, it should produce humility in us because we know even better how big and great our God is and how small and insignificant we are. There is no room for pride in those who study God. Instead, there is only place to shut our mouths, recognize our weakness, and be blown away at the bigness and greatness of our God. Having sound doctrine should never lead us to boredom and apathy because when we study God, we are studying the most magnificent thing that we could ever study. We were created to love and be satisfied and to know and to reflect God in our lives. So if you're super duper interested in temporary things, and yet you could care less about knowing God, knowing His Word, knowing more about the truth and building your life on it, then there is a problem. There's a problem because If we know the Lord, it's going to stir up in us a desire and a hunger for God. Did y'all hear the language? I I prayed Psalm 63 earlier. Okay? We should practice praying like the, the, the Bible does. And did you hear the way that David described his relationship with God? I am satisfied in God. I am clinging to God. I am longing for God. I am parched and thirsty for God. I am hungry for God. Our hunger and thirst should be for God, because that's what true conversion produces in us. And the way we know God is through sound doctrine and good theology that does not just make us intellectual and proud, but instead transforms us. If sound doctrine is rightly understood, if it is rightly esteemed, and it is rightly believed, it is going to lead to sacrificial Christ-like lives that are bringing glory to God. Sound doctrine has to be prioritized, and we know that it's not being prioritized by those who are teaching in these ways in Ephesus. Why? Because, he says, people who are teaching these things have swerved from what? They've swerved from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. Their bad theology is producing unholy, impure lives practically. So for a church to guard the gospel, Scripture must be the standard of truth and sound doctrine must be prioritized. Third, for a church to guard the gospel, the purity of the church must be protected. The purity of the church must be protected. 
We read in verse 3 that Paul tells Timothy, stand against those teaching false doctrine. Then, the last, one of the last verses we read, verse 6, says that those who are teaching false doctrine have swerved away from love and pure hearts and good consciences and a sincere faith. And then, we're going to get to this in a few weeks, verses 19 through 20, you can skip down and, and look at it, It says that those he's describing, in his words, have made shipwreck of their faith and cannot even be affirmed to be true believers anymore. We're going to unpack that in, in time when we get there. But Paul is showing in this letter and all over the New Testament that there is a concern for believers to make the right confession right, or the, the right profession of faith to have good doctrine and good theology. And his concern is that they are going to be modeling, living out lives that are transformed by the gospel. And Paul's concern for those realities, the fact that he's saying some who are doing these things, we can't even affirm they're believers. Timothy, stand against them. Speak the truth. Be courageous. Be convictional. Don't let this happen. Guard the sheep. Protect the flock. The fact that he cares about that that much means something significant to us, and that's this. The New Testament church is not to be a mixed community of believers and unbelievers like Old Testament Israel was. Now what I didn't just say is, If you don't love Jesus, don't you dare come into our church. Don't you dare come sing our songs. Don't you dare come listen to our... That's not not what we're talking about. We're talking about being a part of the church. Not Not a face in the crowd, but being someone who is actively involved, committed there in covenant together. The the church, the New Testament church, the new covenant people of God are not supposed to be a mixed group of, of believers and unbelievers. Instead... The new covenant that God promised and prophesied in the Old Testament that Jesus came and inaugurated and purchased through His life, death, and resurrection. This new people, this new way of relating to God means that new covenant people are born again. They're Christ followers. They're Spirit-empowered. They're Bible-believing. They're Gospel-proclaiming, missional-living, holy, sin-fighting people. Not perfect people. But all those other things I just said. Still struggling people. Still giving in to temptation and fighting against the flesh. Still needing accountability. Still needing people to watch their backs. Still not having all their answers, all their questions answered. Still having doubts. And yet, truly born again. Truly following and exalting and treasuring Christ. Empowered by the Spirit to say no to sin. Treasuring the Bible and making it the authority of their life. Proclaiming the gospel in obedience to mission. Sin killing holy life living people. What's the problem with that? There's not a problem with it in the Bible. That's just what the Bible says. The problem with it is that we live in a place where there are many who claim to follow Jesus and claim to be saved and claim to represent Him, and claim that they're going to heaven, whose lives show no evidence that anything has ever spiritually happened in them, that their hearts are still far from God. There are many who say, 
you know, yeah, I'm going to heaven when I die, but I don't really think Jesus is better than being the king of a vast domain. (laughs) Jesus isn't really better than riches untold and wealth and prosperity in this life. I mean, Jesus is good. Like, I want to go to heaven. That's better than hell, right? Of course. And I don't want anybody to think that I'm like a heathen, right? But, but better than wealth and comfort and prosperity and, and, and man's approval? No. Worth getting up and coming to church on Sunday? I mean, if nothing else conflicts, nothing else more important. Worth spending time to get to know God and His Word? Well, not if my show's on. I didn't just say TV was bad. I didn't just say if you've ever missed church, you know, one-way ticket to hell. That's not what I just said. I'm talking about people whose lives are characteristically marked by putting the world in front of Christ. When sin is in their life, things that the Scriptures clearly say are sinful and against God's will, we justify it, explain it away, and say, well, that was written a long time ago, and we're more enlightened now, we know better. So it's okay. Don't judge me, legalists, right? When people claim to follow Christ, but they deny Him with their bad theology and their unrepentant sin, it's dangerous for them, but it's also dangerous for the watching world. It's dangerous for them because they are believing a lie. They are believing that they are right with God when the bad fruit that their life is consistently producing is evidence that they are not. It's also dangerous for them when churches are quick to say, oh yeah, you said a few words, let's just get this taken care of and let you punch your ticket to heaven because it's like giving someone a shot to inoculate them from actually responding to the gospel. I'm good with God, I don't need to listen to this. It's dangerous for them, it's also dangerous for the watching world. Why? Because the watching world then consistently sees people who say Jesus is better who proclaim with their life, Jesus is King, Jesus is Lord, I have surrendered all, I am one of Christ's people. And yet they see those evidences of bad fruit constantly in their life and that their values are totally out of line with what they know God's Word says. And it makes the watching world believe, that's just a sham. There's not enough power in the gospel to actually change and transform somebody. When that kind of stuff is happening consistently, which it is in our day, in our community, it makes it easy for that old saying that the church is just a bunch of old hypocrites to keep being said. I want to say, they're right. The church is full of hypocrites. But they're repentant hypocrites. They're imperfect hypocrites. They're, I'm going to give up this sin and cut off arms and hands and gouge out eyes to pursue holiness, imperfect hypocrites who are longing for that day when there will be no more temptation to sin. But it's not the kind of hypocrites who say, I know what the Bible says, I just don't care, I'm going to do what I want. It might be you here this morning. I know it gets real when you say that. People have eyes and ears, they see. They know what you value. They know what you spend your time doing. When church member roles are full of folks who don't practice what they preach and don't prioritize Christ, the world will say, there is no power in the gospel. This must not really be real. 
when people who are called to represent Jesus neglect church, choose sin over Christ, have no legitimate desire for the Lord, lack any convictions to stand for truth, and are influenced more by worldly values than by God's Word, what happens is is that our Savior Jesus' name and reputation is drugged through the mud. And when that kind of stuff is happening, false teachers will easily infiltrate churches and no one will even recognize it. That's why Timothy was sent to Ephesus. And that's why it's still necessary for churches to protect their purity today. How? I mean, there's lots of ways. A few this week that came to mind is meaningful church membership. So that being a part of a church is an accountable covenant between believers who say, we're agreeing to believe the right gospel and to walk arm in arm together, running after Christ, watching each other's backs, kicking each other in the pants occasionally to get us on the right track, encouraging those who are down, bearing each other's burdens, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, using our spiritual gifts to build up and edify the body and to fulfill the one another commands of Christ, and living life together as a covenant community and an embassy of heaven. We have to have discernment when people make professions of faith. We need to make sure that the person who makes a profession of faith is not just being led by their emotions, but they actually understand what kind of a commitment it is to follow Christ. That they understand the good news of Jesus and it can explain it in their own way, that they've counted the cost, that they know what true repentance looks like in their life and that they're willing to say, Jesus is Lord and I will follow and obey Him all the days of my life. Not being in a hurry to take steps of faith before someone is ready. We must be serious about discipleship, helping believers grow up in the gospel, helping them get from where they are to to, to further towards Christ-likeness through one-on-one discipleship, through getting plugged into the church, through accountable relationships, and so many other things. Listen, the church is not a perfect people. I hope that's not what you take away from this. It's not a perfect sinless people. It's not. But the church is to be a repentant, Bible-treasuring Christ-exalting, Spirit-empowered people. When somebody comes and visits our church who's not a part, sometimes people are going to come in and they're going to say, I don't fit in here because I have this, this, and this in my life. And if they say that they don't fit in because all the people turn their eyes and cut their eyes at them and think, what are they doing here? I'm glad they're here. They definitely need some Jesus. If that's our posture towards people who come in to to gather and to consider the Word and to consider the claims of Christ, then people will not feel welcome. Our message should not be, do better and be more like me. It should be, Jesus is better and He saved my stinking hiney from going to hell and I need His help every day because I'm struggling and I'm just telling you He's better than what you're living for, so come join me and let's walk on this path together. That is an infinitely more compelling message than a message of reform your life and be more like me or I will judge you. When false teaching and worldly lifestyles and unrepentance and false converts and low standards creep into a church's membership and leadership, things go haywire quickly. So we must protect the purity of the church. That's the third way to guard the gospel. There's one more I want to point out. 
The last way that a church is to guard the gospel found in our text is that the truth must be boldly proclaimed. The truth must be boldly proclaimed. Paul has called Timothy to gospel ministry. He's called him to stand for the gospel, to protect the sheep, and in doing so, to exterminate wolves who are in sheep's clothing from the flock. Listen, sometimes ministry is positive and encouraging like Caleb. But sometimes ministry requires stern rebuke and correction and even loving church discipline. Paul doesn't say, Timothy... You just go in there and wreck shop and be a mean-spirited bully. But he also doesn't call him to go in and be a love fairy who overlooks serious, eternal issues in the name of being nice and popular and making everyone feel special about themselves. He doesn't say be a bully. He also says don't be a pushover. Because do you know what happens to shepherds who are pushovers? Their sheep get devoured. He's calling him to protect the sheep and the reputation of Christ no matter the cost. Why? Because you don't pet and pamper wolves. You shoot them. If they don't, they'll destroy the flock. I want to be careful here. I didn't just say shoot somebody. So if you heard that, you heard wrong. It's a metaphor. How does a church stand against wolves? They boldly, convictionally, and unashamedly proclaim the truth no matter the consequences. Why? Because Jesus is worth it and His blood-bought people need protection. And that's a call that every one of us should take seriously even if we're not a pastor or church leader. Because as members of Christ's body, we covenant together to protect each other's souls and watch out for one another. What's the purpose of all this? What's the purpose of being convictional and bold, church-protecting, sound doctrine-affirming members of a local church? The purpose is in verse 5. The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Our holding to sound doctrine, our protecting the purity of the church is not an effort to make ourselves feel superior, but it is an effort to obey God and love others. And that kind of love comes from transformed hearts that have been made alive and made pure by the gospel. That kind of love comes from having a good conscience because our mind is being renewed after God's Word. That kind of love comes from having a sincere faith in the promises of God that you are building your life upon. And those who have transformed hearts and renewed minds and spirit-led consciences and unwavering faith will love their God and will love their neighbor and will love their church and will love the the truth enough to speak that truth even if it's unpopular. True biblical Christ-exalting love is true and genuine, but it is also tough and gritty and resilient. 
And that's the kind of love that God gives to His people in the gospel. Because when we are born again, we are not only fully and finally forgiven before God, justification. It's not only that our penalty is paid, but we are also given new spiritual life. We are taken from spiritual death to spiritual life, made alive in the gospel, given the Holy Spirit so that we are now the tabernacle and temple of God. We are given new hearts with the law of God written inside and on it so that we love God and we are able to do what God has called us to do because Jesus has done it and His Spirit is empowering us. And that empowering work of sanctification, that empowering work of regeneration empowers us to pursue holiness. It empowers us to love God's Word, to delight in God's purposes, and to live at peace with God's people. It helps us to live lives that are slowly but surely becoming more holy, becoming more and more marked by holiness and less and less by hypocrisy. It enables us to live lives that are built on the foundation of God's Word. And it's all because of Jesus' finished work in our place and the Holy Spirit's empowering presence in our lives. That is what helps us to be good stewards and good managers of what God has given us and what He's called us to do. Paul wants Timothy to shepherd the flock to be good stewards of the gospel. And in order for them to do that, they have to have pure hearts and clean consciences that are motivated by the Word and a sincere faith. And in order for that to happen, they have to build their life on God's Word and be empowered by the Spirit. And in order for those things to happen, they need spiritual protection from someone who is willing to help them guard the gospel that saves and sanctifies. That's what Paul and Timothy are at in Ephesus. And friends, that call to guard the gospel has not changed over the course of history. That is our call as believers. And we will only be able to obey those calls because of God's undeserved grace. Our God is the Savior and He is the Sanctifier. Our God is the faithful God who will hold us fast and empower us to be faithful. So as we close this morning, having considered God's Word and this call to guard the gospel, it is a right response to reflect on Him, to reflect on His character, His greatness, and to praise Him for who He is. And as we do that, as we pray and as we sing, my prayer and my my urging to you is to do business with God. Whether your need this morning is salvation for the first time because you've heard this and you just recognize, I don't think I've ever been born again. And I want to know more about what that looks like. And I want, to, I want to follow Christ. And I want to know Him and have assurance. And I want to live for Him and lay down my sin. If that's your need this morning, praise God. Come to Him. Trust in Him. We would love to walk alongside you. If your need this morning is confession or repentance or whatever it is, it's praise. If you just need to praise God and thank Him for what He's done and what He's still doing, whatever it is, let the Spirit guide you to respond this morning as we close. And as we do that, let us remember our God's faithfulness because His faithfulness alone helps us to be faithful and to do what His Word calls us to do. Let's pray. 
Father God, we thank You this morning for Your grace. We thank You this morning for Your mercy. God, I thank You that in Your providence You saw fit, Lord, to give us Your Word so that we could know You. Lord, I pray that You will help us to build our lives on You, on Your Word, on Your Gospel. Help us to treasure Christ. God, open the eyes of our hearts to see You afresh and anew. Help us to marvel at the glories of the Gospel. Help us to never grow so accustomed to hearing the good news that it ceases to be amazing to us. God, stir up our zeal and our affection for the Lord. God, stir up our desire and our hunger to know You more through sound doctrine. God, give us the discernment we need to spot truth from falsehood. God, to spot a counterfeit from a mile away. God, help us to be a church that is pure and running after holiness. God, help us to speak the truth in love. Not to speak the truth so we can be right. To speak the truth because we love you and others too much to not do so. God, thank you for your faithfulness. Help us to follow and obey you. And I pray that as we respond, your spirit will guide us to make much of you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.